continuing with the series on Rav Eliezer Malamid and Pnei Halacha. So in this episode, we're going to talk about what I call Rav Malamid's civilizational approach to Halacha. And I think that this is a key to understanding what's going on. What is this whole project of Pnei Halacha? What Rav Malamid is trying to accomplish with it? And it's going to tie together a lot of things, both in, in Pnei Halacha itself and in the practical organization of Rav Malamid's own community. And you'll see what I mean by that. So we'll start with a passage from Penine Halacha. It appears in the first volume of Kashrut, of the laws of Kashrut. So here Rav Malamid asks a question that, on one hand, it's kind of an obvious question, and on the other hand, nobody really asks it, because... In order to ask the question, you have to be coming from a particular frame. And the question is this. The Torah has numerous mitzvot that require the giving of gifts to the poor. In the Torah itself, first of all, you have a general mitzvah of Right? You're not allowed to. Um, you, you have a mitzvah to give tzedakah to somebody that needs it. And then you also are forbidden to take advantage. You're forbidden to charge interest to a, um, to a, uh, a poor member or you know, to anybody that's part of your society, i.e. to any fellow Jew. And then you have the mitzvot of leket, and shikha, and peah, and peret, and ololot, various gifts to the poor that any landowner must, is required to leave, or required to give, or required to leave for the poor in the field. Right? The entire Book of Root. We, uh, we're familiar with this idea from the Book of Root, right? That's, that's a dramatization of these laws of giving gifts to the poor, right? That's the, the mitzvah of peya is probably the most, it's probably the best known, right? To leave the, the mitzvah to leave the corner of the field unharvested so that the, so that the poor can go and harvest it for themselves. Okay, fine. In addition to those, you have what's called ma'aser ani, the pauper's tithe. Now, here we get into the biblical cycle of years, the seven-year cycle, the Shemitah cycle or the sabbatical cycle. So the mitzvah of Shemitah is that every seven years, the, the, the land, all land must be left fallow in Eretz Yisrael. And in that year, rich and poor alike are entitled, are equally entitled to whatever grows in the field. Fine. That's one year out of seven. The other six years are broken down into two cycles. Two three-year cycles. And in this three-year cycle, so every year you have the list of the list of gifts that must be given from produce. Right? So let's say I have a field and in my field we harvest 100 bushels of wheat. So first I have to give 
truma to the Kohanim. Right? And so that is two out of the two bushels out of a hundred on average, right? There's no biblical measurement that's mandated for this, but Chazal already established. Yeah, two percent is the norm. And if somebody wants to give a little bit more, they can give two and a half percent. If somebody wants to give a little bit less, you give down to 1.7%, right? 140th, 150th, or 160th. Those are the three tranches, the three channels that the rabbis give us. So that leaves 98. That leaves 98 bushels. Of those, 10% go to uh, go to the Levi'im. Right? So 10% of 98, 9.8. So subtract 9.8 from 98, you get 88.2. That's what's left after Truma and Maaser Rishon. And then you have what's called the second tithe, right? Maaser Shani, two out of the three years. Two out of the three years, that, that amount, right, 8.82%, must be, you know, that produce must be brought to where the, where the, where the Mikdash is, right? For most of Jewish history, that was... Yerushalayim, it must be brought to Yerushalayim and eaten there, or it could be redeemed for cash, cash brought to Jerusalem and eaten there, consumed there. Fine. One out of the, the third year is what's called Maaser Ani. So that 8.82% of the gross domestic product every third year, or two years out of every seven-year cycle, goes specifically to the poor. And we can understand how these tithes, how these gifts, are a form of taxation. They're a form of taxation in which people give, you know, you have to support various important institutions, right? You have to support the priests, the Kohanim and the Levian, because the Kohanim and the Levian, they have to dedicate a certain amount of their lives to serving in in the Mikdash, and when they're not serving in the Mikdash, the idea is that they would be teaching Torah, right? So there you're funding, by funding the Kohanim and Levim, you're essentially funding a, a religious system and, a, and an educational system, a religious educational system. Fine, we understand that a certain amount of the national budget has to go to that, of the GDP has to go to that. Maaser Shani, well, it's very important, especially if you read Sefer Nehemiah, it's important to have, for any civilization to have a, a cultural capital, a religious and cultural capital. And in order to do that, you have to, how do you make one place the center? Well, you say, if you say a certain amount of money has to be sent in, spent in a place, and you say that there's a mitzvah to make pilgrimages to that place, then all of a sudden that place becomes a center. And one of the ways to incentivize it becoming a center and, and to incentivize pilgrimages there is basically by saying... Listen, you have all this money, but you can't spend that money. It's locked up. The only place that you can spend that money is, it's almost like a gift card, right? Here, you have 10% of your income is put on this gift card, and in that, that gift card can only, is only works in Jerusalem, right? And it only works on food. So you go to Jerusalem, you're flush with, with cash that can only be spent in Jerusalem, and you have an incentive not only to buy food there, but you have an incentive to like, 
buy food that you can eat while you're there, right? So you have an incentive. If I trade in, let's say if I have 10 bushels of wheat that I redeem for cash, when I go there, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm not going to eat 10 bushels of wheat. I'm going to spend that money on more expensive foods, meat and wine, and I'm going to be incentivized to share. And that makes it possible for other people to come to Jerusalem and also partake in this bounty of all this money that has to be spent in Jerusalem, right? It makes perfect sense from, you know, what we call a civilizational perspective, why you would want to do that. This is all, by the way, this is, Rav Malamed doesn't say all this. Now I get to the point where Rav Malamed speaks. Rav Malamed, and, and I'm still paraphrasing, but this is what Rav Malamed says. Rav Malamed says, okay, so once every three years, you have about 9% of the gross domestic product goes to the poor. How does that help them in the slightest? Meaning, if they need this to live, if they're living off of this, then you can't expect them to save up and make sure that that 9% that they get lasts for three years. Wouldn't it be more prudent, instead of giving them 9% every three years, to just give them 3% a year? Meaning, part of the experience of being poor, part of the experience of living hand-to-mouth is that you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. And so, right, there's an instability. There's a inherent in the entire, there's an instability inherent in the entire, in the entire um, experience. Right? And there can be no expectation that, okay, I get a check once every three years, and that check is supposed to last for three years. That's, that's not, you, you can't expect that. Right? People are going to have needs now, and those, those pressing needs, the needs that you have now, the needs that the poor people have now, if they don't have what to eat, they're going to spend that money. And if the money runs out, so be it. I've got to eat today, and I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. So why does it make sense to have an institution like Maser Ani? And so of Malamid, right, and, and this is a question that, again, when I, I, I don't know when I learned about Maser Ani for the first time, probably middle school, sixth grade, seventh grade. You learn in Chumash, you learn about Maser Shani and Maser Ani, or you learn about it in Mishnah. But you never think to ask, like, Okay, from the perspective of, from a governance perspective, from the perspective of a running a society, why does Meister Ani make sense? And then Rav Malamed answers. He says, it's obvious that the purpose of Meister Ani is not subsistence. Rather, we have other, those other mitzvot that I mentioned. The leket, the shikha, the peya, the peret, the ololot, and the general mitzvot of tzedakah. Plus, Chazal instituted all kinds of other mitzvot that have to do with, that are related to tzedakah. You have, you know, and just off the top of my head, you have ma'ot chitim, right? That on Pesach, there was a special charity drive. And you have matanot le'avionim on Purim, which is also a form of charity specifically to the poor. 
And you have things like, you know, general pledges. You know, we talk about Chuvo, Trilu, Tzedakah, Ma'avir, and Israel, HaGezerah. You have things like Hachnas Askala, where you would have a specific, that the Mishnah already mentions, that you would take up pledges to help, you know, to help fund a poor girl's dowry. There were all kinds of channels. There are all kinds of tranches through which we can give tzedakah on, on the basis of need, basis of whether it's a, a once a year or one time in a lifetime, something like whatever it is, we have those sorts of tranches. And the purpose of those tranches is to meet today's needs. So the purpose of leket, shikapeya, peret, olalu, and general tzedakah is to make sure that the poor people have what to eat. Make sure that poor people can subsist within our communities, within our societies, within our civilization. So then what's the point of Meiser Ani? What's the point in giving the poor 9% every three years? And this is where Mulamid gets very creative. He says, now again, this is not a halachic context, even though he does include it in Pnine Halacha. It's not, there's no real nafkamina here, right? There's no, this isn't going to make or break how to give Maser Ani and, 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 and who you give it to. Very few people if, that are reading Pnine Halacha, that are learning Pnine Halacha, are farmers in the first place. So the entire question of Maser Ani is moot for a very high percentage of the people that are reading the book. But he says, and what he says sort of guides the way that he thinks about the, the way that he thinks about the purpose of tzedakah, that on one hand you have there that essentially there are two ways of thinking about the purpose of tzedakah. One is subsistence. You want to make sure that the poor have enough to eat. The second is dignity. You want to make sure that poor people have a that, that poor people have enough to live in a dignified manner. Now this debate between whether or not whether let's say you know turning it into a uh, a national a national question the question of whether a welfare program is to allow the poor to subsist or whether it's to give the poor a certain amount of dignity is a question that is a matter of debate and dispute throughout the world right? in terms of how how to organize economic systems and how to organize right, how to arrange the welfare state today in most let's say western regimes the the dignified the, the approach of dignity is, let's say, is winning the day for the most part, but you will always, always have voices that are calling for a slimmed-down welfare state that makes sure that people, we're not cruel, we want to make sure that the poor have enough to live on, but we don't want, we don't want it to be, we don't want to give the poor um, too much of a dignified living. Why? Well, so there are two... There, so what's wrong with each approach? 
what's wrong with the approach of dignified? So opponents of the dignified, the dignity approach, the dignified approach, would say that if you give the poor a dignified living, you're essentially incentivizing them not to have, you're, you're incentivizing laziness. You're incentivizing them to not really go out, to not try to work for a living, to not accept a low-paying job, because a low-paying job will only clear, if you take a low-paying job, it'll only clear a little bit more than you could clear just by living off the welfare state. So why would I take a job where I'm working not, you know, 40-something hours a week, where I make, uh, you know, to make X dollars when I can, you know, basically do nothing and collect a, a welfare check for uh, 90% of X. So that's one of the critiques of, that's, the, you know, that's a critique of the, of the, of the welfare state that aims to confer dignity. And what's the critique of the, the critique of the welfare state that aims for persistence, that aims, sorry, for, for subsistence? Well, the critique of that is that it's, that it's undignified. That people, the human beings, have a need not just, to, not just to live, but to have dignity. And if you're talking, if you're talking about people who, you know, they can afford to eat and not much more. They can, you know, they can, they can wear people's discarded clothes. They can live in shelters. They can eat, you know, the table scraps of the rest of society. That's not a dignified way of living. So you want to balance... Okay, so that's the two approaches and the critiques of the two approaches. I'm not an economist. I'm not getting into, you know, broadly speaking, these are two approaches that you will hear expressed amongst people that think about such things. And so now Rav Malamed turns to the Torah and says, oh, look, the Torah is trying to balance between those two things. The Torah wants to confer a sense of dignity, and not just because dignity itself is an innate value, but also because you don't want to get into a cycle of non-dignity. Um, because you want to, there are some people who, for whom, you know, they've already, you, the society has already given up on. But those people, sometimes they have kids, sometimes they have other family members. So you want to confer dignity so that, you want people to understand what dignity is so that they will aspire to it themselves. Now, he says, and again, you can take or leave his explanation. Is this what the Torah is getting after when it talks about Meiser Shani and Meiser Ani? Maybe. Do you want to tweak it a little bit? That's also a possibility. But the point that he's making is that the Torah is trying, is envisioning a hybrid of different models of a welfare state. That there's one type of welfare, which is essentially what tzedakah is. There's one type of tzedakah that covers subsistence. And then, then there's an, a, another type of tzedakah, an occasional type of tzedakah, one that's not always available, that confers dignity, that allows somebody to live a dignified life. And they alternate. Most years, it's subsistence. But some years, 
two out of every six or two out of every seven. It's about dignity because it's important to confer that dignity. But you also don't want people to have that to be to have access to that dignity always without without working for it or without um, dignity should be something that people own on their own, people that people aspire to on their own. That's one of the goals. That's one of the values. Okay, that's in a nutshell what he says, and it's just it's about two paragraphs in the laws of Kashrut. What does it tell us about what Rav Muhammad's thinking? So what it tells us is that when Rav Muhammad approaches these sorts of questions, even though this is not a halachic question at all, what it tells us is that he's thinking of when he's thinking of what the Torah is commanding us to do, the mitzvot of the Torah. When he thinks of those, he's trying to understand them within a broader political, civilizational framework. Meaning, he takes it for granted. He takes it as, not as for granted, he takes it as a predicate. He, he, it's axiomatic that the Torah, that the mitzvot of the Torah are not just some, you know, are not just a, a series of laws of what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but that they work together to create a blueprint of a civilization. Right? That the Torah envisions a certain type of society and that the specific mitzvot of the Torah are specific policies and specific planks and specific elements of what the Torah envisions. Now, Rav Muhammad is not the first person to think this way. First of all, I think that when, let's start with Ramban. Ramban, what Ramban says is based on Rashi, but the Ramban really elaborates on it. There's this famous, famous thing that the Ramban says that in Chutz La'aretz, the mitzvot are just for practice. Right? That the true fulfillment of every mitzvah, the proper fulfillment of every mitzvah, is only in Eretz Yisrael. And there's all kinds of debate throughout the last 800 years as to exactly what the Ramban meant about that, what meant by that. What does it mean that the Torah is not really, that the Torah is not really for Chutz Laaretz? It's everything in Chutz Laaretz is a derabanan? Does it mean that everything in Chutz Laaretz is somehow a, a second-rate mitzvah that we're not really high of? We're just doing it to stay in practice, which is what Ramban is, and is essentially saying. Meaning, what it, it's what the words say, that the per, we, we stay in practice in Chutz Laaretz by, by doing the mitzvahs. So that's not what Ramban is saying at all. What the Ramban is saying is that, look, the mitzvahs are the mitzvahs, and the Torah is the Torah, and we're commanded by God to do these things. When you live in Chutz Laaretz, or when you live in any society that's not a society that is a, a society that's predicated on the Torah, that looks to the Torah to, as, as the template of its civilization, then all of these mitzvahs in the Torah that we are nevertheless commanded to do, 
they don't necessarily hang together. They don't necessarily function as the blueprint of a civilization. I could, you know, I, could, I can learn Torah, and I can daven, and I can give tzedakah, and I can do all these things, but they're not components of a broader vision of how a civilization, a national civilization, is supposed to function. A national civilization, the Torah is a blueprint for a national civilization, only in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is the staging area, the staging ground where in, within which the Torah envisions the Jewish people creating this society, this type of society, and the mitzvos of the Torah are elements, are the elements of that society. They are the, the nuts and bolts. And again, the mitzvahs are hierarchical. Some of them are broader values. Some of them are specific performances. But together, they constitute the bricks and mortar of this civilization. Okay, if we don't like the Ramban, we can also turn to Rambam. The Rambam also had a civilizational view of halacha. And again, this is Eli Fisher speaking. This is not Rav Malamed. This is me speaking about Rav Malamed. The Rambam also had a civilizational view of halacha. How do I know that? Well, the truth of the matter is, there are a number of ways. I think I have a number of proofs that this is how Rambam thought of halacha. But I think the most, the, the, the most obvious and the most clear expression is to just look at the stru structure of the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah starts, right? The Mishnah Torah, as we know, 14 volumes. We discussed it in the last episode. It is a comprehensive restatement, reorganization and restatement of all of halacha, of all of rabbinic law. It begins with Hilchot Yesodei HaTorah, which literally, it means the foundations, the fundamentals of the Torah, the basic building blocks, the things that are most elemental. And in those, he starts, he starts, with, he starts with a discussion of God. He, dis, he starts with theology. So the Ramam starts with the biggest ideas that there are, ideas about God and who God is and what God is and what we can know about God, and what we can't know about God, and what the existence of God implies for our own lives. And that's how he starts. How does Mishnah Torah end? Well, Mishnah Torah ends with Hilchot Melachim Umilchamotehem. It ends with the laws of kings. That is, it ends with the law of the executive functioning, the executive governing of a society. And in between that beginning and that end are all the elements of what has to go into that society. There's the laws of Nizikin, there's the laws of marriage, there's the laws of uh, there's the laws of worship, there's a lot everything. But it begins with the principle of all principles. And it ends with imagining how such a society functions. And not only that, but within Hilchot Malachim, the very end of Hilchot Malachim, describes the Messianic era. And the Rambam says very clearly in his description of the Messianic era, 
that this is what proper learning and proper performance of all of the everything that I've discussed until now, right? The theology together with the practicalities of 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 living in a in a particular way, all of those come together in this messianic society, the Yemot Hamashiach. And he doesn't see it as some sort of, and the Rambam famously doesn't see this as some sort of mystical vision of what the world is going to look like in the messianic era. No, he sees it as, you know, he goes like Shmuel, Ein bein olam hazelah, No, he said, he, the, according to the Rambam, we're finally going to achieve a utopia. We're finally going to achieve a society that runs the way that God intended through the Torah for societies to run. That is the be-all and end-all of Yemot HaMashiach. Okay, now that has certain implications for how we understand other aspects, of the, uh, some of the Rambam's other ideas, especially the more controversial ones in Mishneh Torah. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time, but I think that that is, <clears throat> in a nutshell, I think the Rambam is so opposed to uh, people who just sit and learn and make society. It's this famously a, a uh, there's famously a an apparent contradiction in Rambam between what he writes in Hilchot uh, Batnot Kuna and Hilchot Shmitavi Yovel that is the Rambam pro or anti Kolel. And I think that modern Kolel is a completely different. I don't want to get into that, but I do want to. I do want to say that the Rambam is clearly very antagonistic to someone who says, "I'm not going to work." Meaning, it's 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 an attitude, right? It's not somebody that can't help themselves. It's not somebody that's just so enveloped in the world of learning that he just can't function in normal society. That's what I think Rambam's talking about uh, when he talks about the uh, the Levian. You know, the 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 modern Levium, right? The Levium who elect to be, the people who elect to be part of Shevet Halevi. It's in Shemitah Yovel that um, I think that what Rambam is saying, the way I understand Rambam, is that people who make a calculation and say, I'm not going to work for a living, rather, I'm going to sit and learn, and I'm going to ask people to pay for it. So for Rambam, that choice is a fundamental misunderstanding. The Rambam sees it as such a chilol Hashem because for the Rambam it completely undermines what the purpose of this world is. The purpose of this world is to construct and to build a certain type of society. What happens when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to live in this society, in this incomplete world, as though the world is already complete? Because remember, for the Rambam, in the future world, the future world, the world that we aspire to, is one where people are going to have the world is, society is going to function relatively seamlessly so that people will have all kinds of time on their hands to, to sit and learn and to contemplate God and to study philosophy and all these other wonderful things. So here you have somebody that says that they want to sit and learn and contemplate God and do all of these other wonderful things, but, but before society has gotten to the stage where everybody can. So the Rambam sees this as a chilol Hashem because this person is basically saying, rather than contribute to the construction of a utopia, I am going to force everybody else to fund a lifestyle in which I can pretend that utopia is already here, even though it's not. 
right? Which for the Rambam is the most terrible and the most, you know, it, it, it's it's a real undermining of, of what the Rambam sees as the view, as the vision for the world at large. I also think that that's one of the reasons that the Rambam comes up with his ideas about the reconstitution of the Sanhedrin. Because if the whole point here, if the whole point of, you know, if everything we're trying to do here, if all of the mitzvot hang together as a civilization, then how is it possible for a civilization not to have some sort of method of adjudicating? Okay, so we lost the Sanhedrin. The original way that the Sanhedrin functioned was that one, Moshe had Sanhedrin, and he gave certain people smicha. And smicha, right, the original smicha, is conferred from one person to the next person to the next person. But at some point, that chain was interrupted. At some point, we're not exactly sure when. The 400s, the 500s, something like that. This train, maybe later... This chain was interrupted. We no longer have that original smicha. We no longer have that chain going back to Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Rambam famously has this idea that, well, there's a way to reconstitute it. I, it sounds an awful lot like the way that popes are elected, by the way. You know, just get everybody together and, and nobody leaves the room until you have someone. Um, right, habeas sanhedrinum. But what's forcing the Rambam, and the Rambam knows he's being a, he's, he's a big Kiddush. He says, Yeru'eli. Right? Like, I think, this is what I think. What's forcing the Rambam's hand? This is that the Rambam, you're talking about, smicha was not itself a mitzvah. Smicha, right, the mitzvah itself is, shoftim v'shotrem titem l'cha b'chol sh'arecha. There is a mitzvah for the Torah to appoint judges in Eretz Yisrael. Right? That's the b'chol sh'arecha part. Um, we have a mitzvah of, yeah, and uh, there is a mitzvah in Chutz Laaretz also, but there's a specific, there are specific elements of the mitzvah that apply only in Eretz Yisrael. So the Ramam looks at this and sees, okay, so you have a mitzvah to appoint judges. And we have a mechanism for appointing judges. What's the mechanism? The mechanism is smicha. But what if we lose the mechanism? What if there's no more mechanism? The mechanism dies out. The person with the recipe died. The person with the key, you know, the key got lost. Whatever it is. We no longer have the mechanism. So for the Raman, that doesn't absolve us from our obligation to do the mitzvah. Right? The mitzvah is to appoint judges. Okay, so we don't have a mechanism to do it. Or, we, or the original mechanism was lost and is no longer viable. So, now what? What do we do now? You still have to have a functioning court system. You still have to have a functioning justice system. I mean, it's one of the Sheva Mitzvot's B'nai Noach. Right? Everybody has to have a judge. The whole world. There's a mitzvah for every civilization and every society in the world to have a justice system. So clearly, the ideal civilization that the Torah envisions has to have a justice system. Okay, so what do we do about the fact that we have no mechanism for appointing judges anymore? Well, you have to have, there has to be another mechanism then. If there isn't one, then you have to invent one. But we somehow have to fulfill this mitzvah because we cannot imagine, you can't say that 
oh, this society doesn't need a justice system, doesn't need a functioning justice system, doesn't need an authoritative justice system, just because the method that we used to have for appointing judges no longer applies. It can't work like that. For the Rambam, if you think about the Torah as a civilizational blueprint, it is unconscionable, it is inconceivable that you have a system that offers no way we have a system that offers no way to appoint judges. And so therefore, the, the Rambam sort of backs into it. He says, there has to be a way, so this is how I think it works. Okay, so Rambam and the Ramban both have these civilizational approaches to halacha. And now we return to Rav Malamed. Rav Malamed, if you look in, if you study Panine Halacha, you'll see that all kinds of elements, all kinds of things that... that Rav Malamed writes about sort of work together. They, they, they stick together in this way. Right? We established through uh, Maser Ani that this is how Rav Malamed thinks. But now we take it to another level. So the first time that I heard Rav Malamed speak, he spoke about something which it turns out it's his favorite speech. It's his favorite topic to speak about. When he goes to communities for Shabbat, this is what he speaks about. And that is the question of learning on Shabbos. Rav Malamet has this whole calculation whereby he comes to the conclusion that people should be learning for six hours every Shabbos. Right, so... All of those, you know, if you're on Twitter and it's like, this is what I learned over Shabbos, this is what I read over Shabbos. For of Malamed, that's six hours worth of material. And that's beyond davening. You don't get double credit if you like, you know, if you're learning during Chazaras shots. Now, on one hand, this is very aspirational. He knows, we all know, most people don't learn for six hours on Shabbos. I once heard from his son-in-law... That he doesn't, I'm saying that the son-in-law doesn't learn for six hours on Shabbos. And obviously there are people with, you know, if both parents, if each parent is learning for six hours every Shabbos, you know, who's watching the kids, right? And so like one person watches, one parent watches the kids so that the other kids take a nap. I mean, the whole calculation is, um, is, is in some ways strange. Because the whole calculation is that, okay, so... You know, Shabbos is 25 hours, you spend seven, eight hours sleeping, so of the rest of the time, you need to divide it between your own needs and God's needs. So all the meals and all that, and your Shabbos nap in the afternoon, your extra sleep, that all goes, that's all in the you part, and everything else has to go in the God part. Okay, so if you have, let's say, 16 hours, then it kind of should be divided up, or 17 hours, 18 hours, I don't know. Let's say it's 18 hours after 7 hours of sleep, 7 hours of basic sleep, so 9 hours for God, 9 hours for you. So of the 9 hours for God, figure about 3 hours of that is davening, Friday night, Shabbos morning, Shabbos afternoon. That leaves 6 hours for learning. That's the basic calculation. And then you have the other 9 hours, you can sleep more, you can, you know, do other things. That's the basic calculation. You have your meals then. That's the calculation. And it bothered me for years. Why is Rav Malamed so 
insistent, meaning he knows. He's, I first heard him, he was in Modi'in for Shabbos. And he's telling the people in Modi'in that they should be learning six hours of Shabbos. Like, let's start with an hour and a half, okay? Let's, let's, let's aim low. Why are you telling these people to learn for six? They're not going to learn for six hours. There's no way they're going to learn for six hours. Most people can't learn for six hours, especially little kids in the house. There's no way in heck they're going to be learning for six hours of Shabbos. What's the point? Why? Why are you speaking about this every chance you get? And it's if you ever look at, you know, Rav Muhammad went there somewhere for Shabbos, and here's a list of all the speeches that he gave, you'll see there's never a Shabbos where he doesn't speak about this at least twice. So what's he trying to do? So it turns out that in Rav Muhammad's view, in Rav Muhammad's vision, I would even say, people work hard during the week. Rav Muhammad happens to be anti-kolel. So he thinks that the only people that should continue learning after a couple of years in yeshiva, he's, he's pro-Hesder, so after the five-year program of you know, combined military service and yeshiva learning, right? And he has a, a short, a different, but he has a different timetable for women, but it's, um, he has a different timetable for women in that uh, he's he's not in favor of Sherut Leumi. He thinks it's a waste of time. He thinks that women should either be learning or working, that they shouldn't be just like, you know, the, the, that a year of, of uh, a year of just volunteering in whatever capacity is... <clears throat> Is more or less a waste of time, and he thinks that we shouldn't be wasting our time. So, so he has views on the right time, you know, what people should be doing in those years between, let's say, 18 and 22 or 23. He's in favor of people going to get advanced degrees, and men and women going to university, getting master's degrees, even PhDs, that they should be pursuing. They, they should be pursuing excellence. They shouldn't be pursuing careers that will just give them, you know, enough to make to make a living, but that will allow them to really and truly excel and bring fulfillment and meaning into their lives through their professions. As such, he's saying essentially, there's going to be a limited amount of time that you spend when you're, oh, and let's add another Let's complicate it even further. He's in favor of young marriage, and he's also in favor of having a lot of kids. He thinks that four is the bare minimum, and he thinks that most people should aspire to having more than four children. They should be trying to have more than four children. Obviously, not everybody is going to be able to you know, have such large families for a, lar- for a wide variety of reasons. But he thinks, and he, and he writes explicitly, that four children is the, absol- is, is the minimum that someone should strive for. Meaning, he thinks that there are, there are times that if someone already, if a family already has four children, they do not need to try or strive to have more children. You know, obviously, you can't give an a blanket statement that everybody has to have four children because obviously there people can't have you know not everybody can have four children not every family can have four children just for you know for very 
obvious reasons, right? For, you know, for, for biological reasons, for health reasons, for any number of reasons. But if the mitzvah of Pergavarivya, the mitzvah of procreation, at least on the rabbinic level, extends to having four children, which means anything less than that, you ought to be striving to have more children. You should be trying to have more children. So here you have a situation where he wants people to go and get careers. He wants people to start raising families. And he thinks that, and these are all, in his mind, not just halachot, but also elements of the sort of society that the Torah envisions. So what about, what about Torah learning? When are people going to learn? People are going to learn on Shabbos. Shabbos is a, is a key part, is a, is a key element and in his vision of civilization, in his vision of a Torah civilization, in the sense that all of the things that, that I recognize that during the week, people are simply not going to have the time and the opportunity between raising their families and going to work, people are not going to have the time or the opportunity to really invest in proper Torah study. And he's not talking about the half an hour a day of listening to a shir or a podcast on the commute. He's talking about real, the, the type of Torah study where you really engage, when you really invest in study. The only time you really are going to have for that in the society that he envisions is on Shabbos. And so here you see that all of these elements, right, several elements, and several key elements of what goes into the type of society, the type of community, the type of civilization that he envisions um, come together, right? Things like the raising of families and family sizes, things like the choice of a career and what we should be striving for in terms of personal fulfillment and in terms of economics. And obviously, Shabbos itself, which is a key, which is a key element of any Jewish civilization, any anything that the Torah envisions, it's every seventh day. I mean, we sometimes lose sight of how absolutely revolutionary the idea of Shabbos is. So all of these things come together and say, okay, so Shabbos is the time for learning Torah because it can't be really any other time and everybody needs to be learning. And then you get to Har Bracha, his community, and you see that it's baked in there. If you go there, first of all, they have situations worked out where they have a program for people that have already finished Hezder and are now studying in yeshiva, where they can continue being in a yeshiva environment while they're in university. They have programs for young married couples to get subsidized housing and subsidized childcare so that the um, so that they can, in their early careers, really put in the time and the energy necessary for their studies or for their careers. He also, and this is part of what has, this is one of the more controversial things that he has, uh, that he's written about. He takes a much more liberal view of 
the use of birth control. Now, that might seem like, wait, didn't you just say that he says you need to have uh, large families? Well, yes, but he thinks that those families should be planned. And he thinks that those, those you know, if, if there's a question of, if there's a question of postponing having children until, um, until somebody completes a, 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 um, a university program or other reasons, and he, you know, and, and he has an entire taxonomy of what are the kinds of reasons and for how long um, that he puts out there. He doesn't say, or he doesn't say that everybody can make the decision on their own, but you know, he says that it should everything, every decision should be in consultation with <clears throat> with a rabbi or with a somebody else who's like a learned individual who knows the couple. But at the same time because it's out there and because it's in print and it's in black on white, people are much more willing to make these decisions by themselves nowadays, right? And that's, I think, part of the controversy when people say that he writes things that should have been only said orally, that shouldn't be committed to writing. I think that his, his, what he's written on birth control is one of those, is one of those things. Um, not the only one, but it is one of them. And it happens to be that he is, one of the most explicit when it comes to writing about birth control, um, then you know, he's more explicit than most postkim that, that came before him, if not all. Um, and so he says that, yeah, birth control on one hand, but large family sizes on the other. Having, you know, really investing in a career and a high-level career, a career that's going to allow you to live comfortably on one hand, but at the same time, you have to compensate for, you know, the week, you know, the, the that investment of so much time and effort into your career, you have to compensate for that with an investment in Shabbos that isn't going to treat Shabbos as your day off, or you're not, you're just not going to work, and you're just sleeping extra, and and taking longer at your meals, but where you're investing in, the, in in your spiritual development because it's something that you're going to be neglecting the rest of the week. So you see here, what's going on is that all of these elements, right? And these are dvarimashib arumo shel olam, families and having children and raising children and Torah and studying Torah and keeping Shabbos. These are these are major elements of Jewish civilization, and they're all functioning together. They're all working together. He doesn't see them as separate sugyot. He doesn't see them as separate areas of halacha. They only function together. They only function, right? You can understand them much more easily only once you see them, only once you see how they function together. Now they all start to make sense. Now, the truth of the matter is that it's quite possible that there are other postgim that felt this way also, that, that also were writing, you know, we mentioned Rambam and Ramban, right? With Ramban, he gives you some ideas. He doesn't then show you how everything that he writes in his halachic works, everything in Dina de Garmi follows in, you know, follows in this, uh, in this, in this pattern. Right? And the Rambam we know, the Ramban we know didn't really write much in terms of halachic codes. Um, but what you do have is, you know, and it's possible, but, but it is possible that there were other codifiers, right? 
The Rambam certainly did. And it could be that there are other codifiers who thought in this way. But for the most part, um, it wasn't it wasn't out there. It wasn't obvious, and it wasn't something that they themselves drew attention to. I don't know if there was a civilizational vision behind the writing of the Shulchan Aruch or the Tor or the Mishnah. Maybe there was, but we've lost it. It's not there anymore. We don't understand it anymore. And maybe there have been other attempts, but we just don't know. With Rav Malamed, he's because he's integrating the what you know what we think of as machshava. He's giving you these ideological aspects. It's a lot more apparent. It's a lot more obvious and 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 out there how these how these different areas of halacha are going to, are supposed to in his mind are supposed to work together, right? For the most part, the way that we you know the way that we think of halacha, we tend to atomize halacha. Right? You take a particular issue, and you look at it. Okay, the Chassam Sofer says this, the Nodem Yehuda says that, Rabbi Kiva Eger says this, the Shagas Arye says that. And we don't think about, okay, was the Shagas Arye, did the Shagas Arye have a broader view, a global view of how halacha is supposed to function, how halacha is supposed to be a blueprint for a civilization? Did Rabbi Kiva Eger have such a thing? We just don't know. Because when we look at a Rabbi Akiva Eger, we're looking mostly at this one shita that he has on the particular issue that we're studying. And I think that that's the way that, and I think that there's something healthy about it too, which maybe we'll discuss another time. You know, I think that that's one of the ways that halacha as a historical phenomenon resists being too dependent, right, overdetermined by ideological considerations. Um, and so we don't know what Rabbi Akiva's politics were. We just know that Rabbi Akiva holds this here and that there. And sometimes you can try to put together that Rabbi Akiva did have a certain ideology or that Rabbi Akiva did have a certain way of thinking about things and way of in, uh, imagining society. But for the most part, it's atomized. Rabbi Akiva doesn't give you a monograph. Rabbi Akiva's words are chopped up and distributed throughout throughout the Mishnah and throughout the Bryces and throughout the Gemara. Right? And that's how Rabbi Akiva reaches us. Not as Miksha Achas, not as a single individual with all of these views, but with all of these different atomized views that are distributed through, you know, hundreds of different areas of Halacha. So Rav Malamed is not. Rav Malamed, what we have from him is Miksha Achas. What we have from him is a single code that's the work of his hands, right? And in which he makes it obvious, or he makes it clear, um, at least to those who study uh, enough of it, that the different areas of halacha hang together. The different areas of halacha work together and function together as part of a as part of a broader civilizational view. So that's what I mean when I talk about Rav Malamid's civilizational approach to halacha. And it's also, you know, we, we ask the question sometimes, what does it mean to be a religious Zionist? Is there such a thing as a religious Zionist halacha? Is there a religious Zionist approach to halacha? So I, in, the most, in most cases, I think it's, 
it's not a great question um, because it could be, you know, whatever, whatever anybody wants it to mean, right? And so it's it's it, it is sort of a moot sort of question. It's a, it's a Rorschach test of sorts. But I do think that when it comes to Ruf Malamid, you can say something like, it's clear, it's apparent that what's his halacha, you know, and a lot of times the particular rulings in that halacha, and we've mentioned a couple, uh, is shaped by an overarching view, a large view of what a what type of civilization the Torah envisions for the Jewish people, for Bnei Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael? What is, what is this civilization that the Torah envisions? What type of society does the Torah envision for the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael? And if that's something that's motivating your, the way you think about halacha, then I think that, uh, you know, if that's what you mean by religious Zionist halacha, then yes, Rav Malamid is creating and is formulating, codifying a religious Zionist halacha. So if that's how you want to define the term, then yes, very much, that's what he's trying to do. But I think that the that that terminology of religious Zionist halacha doesn't really do justice to what Rav Malamid is trying to do. I think that it's something a lot grander in scope than... You know, then is expressed by that, you know, religious, that the, that phrase, religious Zionist halacha. Uh, in the next one, we'll talk about, in the next one, we'll talk about sort of the resistance to this approach. Um, and there we might get into questions of, the questions that have been bothering people in the last few weeks, the criticism that Rav Muhammad has faced what is, you know, what are the types of criticism that are warranted? What types of criticism are seem to be going overboard? But in general, what what is Rav Malamed doing that leaves him open to criticism? 